0: I was actually looking at today's readings a couple of weeks ago. I had just completed the reading from the second chapter of Acts. It was done by saying, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like a rush of uh, wind. When I realized that it had begun to thunder outside, the wind had begun to blow. And I didn't know if I was about to experience another one of our recent storms, or if I was about to hear a voice that said, you have just entered the twilight so Here we are on Pentecost Sunday, the day, 50 days after Easter morning, when we have the account of the disciples waiting and praying for something, when something strange began to happen. The wind began to blow, the building they were in began to shake, and tongues of fire began to appear in the room where they were gathered. Our lesson this morning seemed to be at odds with one another, however. When you look at John's gospel, it says that Jesus appeared to his disciples on that first Easter evening while they were gathered together and said, peace be with you. And John tells us that Jesus showed him his hands and his feet to the disciples to prove that he was the resurrected Messiah. And then Jesus told them that he was about to send them out with a message of good news the same way the Father had sent him. Jesus said, if the Father has sent me, so I send you. And then the scripture says that Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, when we look at each of the various gospel writers, they each seem to give us just just a piece of the total story. We need to look at all four of the gospels to get a sense and feel for what took place during Jesus' last 40 days here on earth following the resurrection. And then in ascension, and 10 days later on the day of Pentecost, now, all four of the writers wrote about the empty tomb. In fact, of all the instances that are recorded in the New Testament, it's only the empty tomb and Jesus' baptism that's described in each of the four Gospels. I think this tells us that these were two pretty special events. Jesus began his earthly ministry <clears throat> following his baptism by John, and he, when he heard the words of his father, said, This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. And I believe that was important there. But frankly, without the resurrection, all the other things that are recorded in the Gospels would be meaningless. Think of that. Everything that the Gospel writers tell us about Jesus would be meaningless if there was no resurrection. So we begin with the common agreement by all the writers that the resurrection of Jesus took place and there wasn't any tomb. After the resurrection, it was Mark and John that tell us about the encounter between Jesus and Mary Magdalene, but only Luke tells us about Jesus' meeting with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Again, it was Luke who records the meeting between Jesus and Peter. Now, all of Matthew were told us about the meeting that we had today when Jesus appeared to the eleven on the evening following his resurrection. It's John who tells us about the second meeting in the upper room a week later. And about Jesus meeting with his disciples by the Sea of Galilee one morning. But keep in mind, I've said before, the Gospels were not meant to be biographies of Jesus' life. Each gospel writer was writing to a specific audience, and each had certain things that they believed were important that needed to be shared with their readers. So while there are occasions when it might appear that the, that the, writers got the different writers contradict one another, that's really not the case at all. They were simply telling the story from their perspective and relating the events that they felt were important to their readers. And they were writing their Gospels several years after that. I think God knew that we'd need all four Gospels in order to get a fuller picture of the events in Jesus' life. So he led each of the four to include certain events. We actually have to get away from the Gospels altogether look at Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth having the account of Jesus meeting James, and his appearance to the 500 during the 40 days following his resurrection. Now, both Mark and Matthew include Jesus' great commission and their final verses in their respective Gospels to go and preach and teach to the ends of the earth. And in fact, each of the writers share a commission with us, though they use different words to convey that commission, that only who actually describes Jesus ascending into heaven both in his gospel writing and again in his second letter to Theophilus and the book of Acts, the Apostles. So as is so often the case, we need to look at all the gospel stories to get the fullest picture of the events in Jesus' life and those of his disciples. In last week's reading, Luke described Jesus' final instructions to his disciples. They were returned to Jerusalem and wait. They were to wait there for the gift of God's promise. Jesus said, in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Remember, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry at the time of baptism, John had said, I baptize you with water, but one who is to come will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And now, in this morning's gospel lesson, Jesus and his disciples on the evening of his resurrection, and we read that Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Then when we read Luke's account of the day of Pentecost, we hear that that violent wind. We watch as the house begins to shake, we witness the tongues of fire, it says that all those gathered were filled with the Holy Spirit. And at first blush, somebody might say, well, I thought the disciples received that back on the day of Jesus' resurrection. And now you're suggesting it didn't happen until 50 days later. Well, that's not the case. That a contradiction. But really, not really. Remember, the disciples weren't the only one in the house by themselves. Luke tells us that there were about 120 other believers that were there with the disciples. it was to those 120 that we speak about this morning, the coming of the Holy Spirit. There are several stories in the Old and New Testament. We read of men and women being filled with the Spirit of God. Abraham and Moses were said to have God's Spirit, as did David and Elijah. The scripture tells us that both Mary and Elizabeth were filled with the Holy Spirit. So the Pentecost story, nor the reading from this morning's gospel, is the first instance when we're made aware of the existence of the Holy Spirit. Both Jesus and the Holy Spirit have been in existence with God the Father since before the beginning of time. We're maybe going to talk about that next week. I don't know. It's Trinity Sunday. What Luke is describing this morning, though, is an instance where the church, as a body, experienced the Holy Spirit in a special way. The twelve were not alone in the room when the building began to shake. There were others there who would, in the days to come, began to form the early New Testament church. And John's gospel it tells us that Jesus breathed on his disciples and they received the Holy Spirit. And relating this event, John, John may have been thinking back to the creation story. When we read how God formed man out of dust, the dust of the ground, and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life. He became a living being. It's the same sort of image that we might have if we look at the account of Ezekiel in the valley of dry bones. Remember that Old Testament story? Ezekiel had a vision of a valley covered with dry bones, and in his vision he heard God say to the wind, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain they may live again. I believe that's what the coming of the Holy Spirit's like. When a person or church is filled with God's Spirit, it's like being brought back to life from the dead. You become a totally new person. We know that Jesus brought glory to His Father through His obedience to the will of God. Jesus had become the perfect messenger of God because He loved God. He loved His Father and He was willing to follow His plan for His life. I believe that what we might learn from this morning's lesson is that with Jesus' great commission coupled with the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the church had been called to be God's messenger to the world. But even the church can only fit to be God's messenger and the instrument of God's love when her love for God and her willingness to be obedient is complete. And who's the church? We're the church. And if we as individuals fail to be loving and obedient people then the church will fail in its mission to spread God's word to a world Yeah, we're the church I told someone once that that, that Christians are as a church we can't make our decisions on our own and then ask God to bless our decisions now we're called to prayerfully attempt to discern God's will for our lives and then be obedient to that will we know when we serve God's will, we're at peace with ourselves. We're at peace with one another. If you're not, if there's not peace in your life, there's a pretty good sign that you may not be living that life that God's called you to. If there's little or no peace in your life, you may not be making much of an effort to serve God's will for your life. Or if you have, you're just not following that will. I'm not experienced, or suggesting that you'll you'll never experience problems or maybe even heartache. But then you have God's peace to help you get through those times. Jesus had come to earth in the form of man. He had gathered around him a handful of men who had taught and groomed to continue the work that he had begun. They were the ones that he had chosen and he breathed on them and he filled them with his Holy Spirit. And then it is essentially told them to go into Jerusalem and wait. And that's what they did. But we learned from the scripture that in addition to those 11 remain apostles, over those 120 believers that were gathered with them. And it was during those 10 days between Jesus' ascension and the days of Pentecost that Matthias was selected to take the place of Judas. So in this morning's lesson from Acts it begins when the day of Pentecost came they were all together in one place. There are three great Jewish festivals to which every male living within 20 miles of Jerusalem was legally bound to attend. Some of you have been studying that. They were Passover, Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Some of you remember that. Some of you don't. Passover was the first of the great feasts. Passover was observed 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. Pentecost was a Feast of Tabernacles. Was the last of the feast that took place near at Now, since the Jewish men were required to attend both Passover and the Feast of Weeks in Jerusalem, there would have been huge crowds in the holy city on both occasions. And this is why we heard the great international gathering that Christine described in our first reading: Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Cappadocia, Phrygia, Pamphylia—just a few. Luke writes that on the day of Pentecost he describes a, a roar, a violent windstorm that was observed by those that had gathered to pray in the temple. And we can only assume that that huge crowd of pilgrims that they were worshipping at some point became aware that something unusual was taking place somewhere in the city. And as they ventured of the temple grounds they could see flashes of fire coming from the nearby houses. And I imagine that the people wanted to see what was happening. What could all this mean? I mean, this was a springtime, this is not the time of the year there for storms and strong winds like we seem to have here recently. Suddenly, twelve men emerged from the house and began to speak to all who would listen. And Luke tells us that the crowd was astonished because everyone was hearing what was being said in their own language. A number of years ago, I preached a sermon on Pentecost Sunday, and I suggested that what occurred on Pentecost may not have been a miracle of tongues, a memory maybe a miracle of ears. We don't actually know if the disciples were speaking different languages or not. Luke only tells us that everyone heard what was being said in their own native language. I heard a story several years ago, Terry Fulham, who was the rector at St. Paul's Church in Derry, Connecticut told of a man and his congregation who had brought his mother to church with him one Sunday morning. That evening they came back for an evening service. And after the service, the man came to Father Fulham and said, my mother enjoyed your sermon so much this morning that she insisted on coming back again this evening. Now, Father Fulham shared that that service was something that any preacher likes to hear. But then came the kicker. The man said, but you don't understand He said, my mom's from Eastern Europe, and she doesn't speak a word of English. But somehow she understood every word he said. (coughs) Father Philip, to his credit, didn't attempt to explain what had taken place, because he couldn't. But as he shared the story, he said, maybe that's what Pentecost was like. Now, William Barclay is a well-known author and theologian. He suggests in reality that the vast majority of Jews who had come to Jerusalem feast would have spoken either American or Greek. Since so those were the two languages that are most universally spoken throughout the known world at the time. So that the idea that the apostles actually were speaking in foreign language <coughs> may not occur. We don't, we don't know. Carol and I were in Stockholm several years ago. I was amazed. More often than not, while we were speaking English, we couldn't understand them, and they couldn't understand us. The same was true when I was in South Africa a few years ago. English is taught there in the schools. English-speaking people don't always understand one another. So what happened in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost is, is somewhat of a mystery. For whatever reason, God seemed to have opened the ears of the crowd so that they understood what the disciples were proclaiming. And maybe that's what's really important in our lesson this morning. What we do know and what isn't as important is that people heard it. They actually heard the message of the good news for the first time. For the first time, they heard the story of Jesus in such a way that their hearts were touched. Some of these people may not have heard about Jesus before. Some may have, but they hadn't understood I suspect that many of the people were were hearing the story for the first time, since they lived outside the immediate area, and word didn't travel back in New Testament times like it does today. So what did happen on that morning in Jerusalem? The Holy Spirit had filled the hearts of the apostles, and they entered the streets of Jerusalem with a message burning in their hearts and on their lips, and they proclaimed that message in a very powerful way, and the people listened, and they heard, and they understood before the day was over, the scripture tells us that 3,000 people believed and were baptized. That was the beginning of the New Testament church. Jesus had told his disciples to do what? Take the gospel where? To Jerusalem, then to Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Now, how in the world were 12 men ever going to accomplish that task? I suspect that during that 10 days between Jesus' ascension and the day of Pentecost, they'd ask themselves that question. On numerous occasions. It was an impossible task. But what happened at Pentecost? 3,000 people were converted. We remember in the Bible, that only counted the in. We could only assume the number was greater when you include the women and the children. And what happened to those 3,000 plus people at the end of the feast? They returned their homes. In Judea. In Samaria. And to the ends of the earth. And they took the good news with them. The church had been born. All the works of the disciples had just been And In the remainder of the book of Acts, we have the accounts of Peter and the other disciples as they continue to preach and teach. We have the record of the calling of the first deacons who the church chose to serve the people in order to free the disciples to do their ministry. Later, we see Jesus appear to Saul on the road to Damascus. Saul was converted and his name changed to Paul. And the remainder of the book of Acts tells of the missionary journeys. Through Asia Minor and beyond. And here we are this morning. Two thousand years later, and God's commission of His church hadn't changed. We're still called to carry the good news out to the world. And that commission is meant to be for all Christians. Not just the clergy and a handful of committed people. We're all called to share our story with someone else. We're called to live by example a life that says that, that Christians are different. They're more loving, they're more caring, they're more committed. At least that's what we're supposed to be. Several years ago, St. James took a big step forward in their history as a worshiping congregation. After several years of discussion and debate, they decided to make a serious commitment to the mission and to the diocese. and They petitioned the diocese to become a parish. they have been in that little congregation delay that sort of prided themselves on their independence for a long time. They recognized and acknowledged the need to be a part of the larger church and that that, that commitment to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth, they realized they, they couldn't do that on their own. It's a little mission station. They were welcomed into the diocese with open arms. and Many people expressed the joy of having watched the folks at St. James have grown and matured through the years. Many people including Bishop Stanley. As you said, James is an example of what can happen when a congregation embraces a vision. And he makes a commitment to move forward in faith. Mr. Stanton used to love called St. James, a congregation that, that prayed for one another. Isn't that a wonderful image to have for a church? I told the people at St. James that one of the benefits of being a parish is having the ability to call your own rector. Well, just last week you received the official word that your new rector will be here in just a, a few more months. And said Dunstans will take their own step forward in faith. I think the vestry recognized the role the Holy Spirit played in the search process. The same spirit that had brought you together in a special way when you were building that building a few years ago is now prepared to lead you in the fields of endeavor under new leadership. Well, I know that the process was a little unusual, but there's no doubt in my mind that the Holy Spirit's been leading you in this direction from the very beginning. You need to acknowledge that you didn't get where you are today solely through the efforts of your own people, although there are many here who have given themselves time and again to help bring you to where you are today. This was always a joint venture between you and the Holy Spirit because that's the way it's meant to be. And just as God has blessed the efforts of the folks at St. James, he's done the very same thing here with St. Dunstan's because each of these congregations has been faithful to the will of the Father. I know it's been easy, hasn't it? I remember a few years ago, you began your major remodeling project shortly before we began our building program at St. James. I remember hearing the horror stories that were connected with the problems that would arise as you attempted to comply with the various handicap regulations in order to keep the building inspector happy. People at St. James were praying that they wouldn't face the same problems or have the same building inspector. And when everything was completed, we were thankful changes we had to make were small compared to some of the issues that you had to deal with. But in both instances, we were attempting to do what we felt God was calling us to do. But I suspect that you folks have discovered the same thing that the people say James did. The same Holy Spirit that appeared in the early church 2,000 years ago is still alive and well and can be felt in a very powerful way when we're attempting to do God's will. We just need to be more aware of God's presence. We need to understand that the commission to the early church is still the commission of the church today. And we need to be just as obedient to the will of God as those in the early church. What's left of the people at St. Dunstan's do? Well, you're still called to spread the word. You're called to share your story with others. You're called to bring a friend or neighbor into your worshiping family. You know, outreach is a wonderful thing. But if it doesn't lead to bringing another person to the knowledge of the rest of the Lord, then that's work that could just as easily have been done by the Quakers Club of the Unitarians. Your outreach needs to have a purpose. And it needs to be directed toward drawing others into the knowledge of the love of God. He said, just as the Father has sent me, so I send you. At your baptism, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The question you need to ask this morning is, "What am I doing with that gift? What am I doing to spread the good news, the gospel? Being a faithful follower of Christ entails more than simply being faithful in your Sunday attendance. I saw somewhere that when you leave the church, you're entering your mission field. Remember where I saw that sign? <laughs> Paul told the church in Corinth that we've been given certain gifts and that we're meant to use those for the common good. How are each of you using your gifts? May we recognize the presence of the Holy Spirit here with us in our midst this morning as we continue to worship the living God. And may we give God thanks that he cares enough for his children, that he sent us his Spirit to be with us in all that we do. This has been called Sunday. But let's not just remember God's Holy Spirit and His work and His church in our lives as individuals on this one day on the church calendar. Let's begin each day by giving God thanks for the gift of the Spirit and asking that we'll be open and receptive to His leadership in our lives each day. The psalmist said, Oh Lord, how manifold are your works. They remembered these words and found joy in the knowledge that one of His mighty works was giving us his own spirit.